The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmilzer. Our guest today is Doba Paroshev, who is the Senior Associate at Edison Partners. Hi, Doba, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Kathleen. Hey, Ron. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining. So we'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your current role at Edison Partners. Sure thing. Happy to. Let's see. My name is Doba Paroshev, and I'm a Senior Associate at Edison Partners. In terms of background, I think my first interaction with AI was back in the late 90s, more or less. When in high school, I tried to pack together a neural network in, I guess, obsolete procedural programming language called Pascal. Needless to say that, you know, it didn't go that far, but it was a fascinating introduction to a concept of generating evolving algorithms that are not simple input-output machines. Anyway, I never lost my fascination for the topic and eventually found myself as a VC at and Partners, where I get the privilege to go and deploy capital behind some smarter people who actually have pursued the field and are doing some really cool stuff in it. Let me actually mention Edison a little bit. As for Edison, we're a growth equity fund. We're based in Princeton, New Jersey. We generally invest in technology companies with a fairly strong focus on financial technology, healthcare IT, and enterprise software. Actually, that last one, enterprise software, is where I spend most of my time. Edison has been around for some 30-odd years. So when you look at our portfolio, the focus is much more on business scalability than the initial product market fit that generally has been resolved by the time we get involved. At this point, we are wrapping up our eighth fund. And over the course of our history, we've invested in some 220 portfolio companies, exited 170-ish of them, and some 45 are currently active on portfolio. I'm pretty sure the math checks out on that. Well, great. Well, you're definitely very active. I know you also get involved usually sort of in the later part of the Series A, Series B, right? I think you talked a little bit about sort of the typical size of your round of the kinds of companies at stage in which you invest at, correct? Sure. Yes. You know, we will see us writing usually $8 to $12 million checks. I said the companies already have a product. They're in market. They're at least the $5 million revenue run rate. So there's something there, a substantial product that is working well. And let me translate this back to the topic at hand, which is AI. That usually means that we tend to focus on narrow AI applications. So most of our companies are using AI within their operations to make them more efficient, more effective, more seamless, drive more value. But they're not the so-called general AI type based research companies. Yeah. Well, this is really great transition to this question then. I mean, you know, Edison Partners, you're a very active venture capital firm in the AI industry and narrow AI, as you talk about it here, but would love to hear a little bit more. I mean, can you talk to us about some of the recent investments Edison Partners has made in AI companies? What made these companies stand out to you? And perhaps even just some of your AI investment philosophy, you know, as part of all that. Sure thing. Well, let me take a step back first and perhaps answer the broad question of why we as venture capitalists care about AI in the first place. And if you look at our industry, you will notice that our business model is very simple. We go out, we find people who are building really cool companies, have some really bright ideas, and we try to fund them to support them into growing a successful business, usually solving a real life problem. And then in a few good years, usually shorter than a decade, if things work out okay, exiting the company, either making it public or selling it to a large corporate and making money for us, for the CEO, for the management team, and for everybody involved. 
If you think about that horizon and the way we think about things, we don't really fund basic research. That tends to be more of a government university endeavor. What we do is we try to find solutions that, you know, in the next decade will likely yield a very good product that is profitable. So if you look back over the past 20 years, we looked at AI as a bit of a curiosity. We're coming out of a AI winter, as I know you guys have discussed in the past. And suddenly some large corporates, the Googles, the Amazons, the Apples, and so on, went on a acquisition spree in this space, hiring those small teams, three, four, five people, almost acquihiring some of the best professionals in the field. Because it had turned out that those people were actually developing machine learning and AI algorithms, which were very relevant to the new product that those companies were pushing. For example, Amazon Alexa or Google Image Recognition or such other products. With that, needless to say, as good venture capitalists, we started paying more attention and figuring out what may be the next wave that's coming that will use these new technologies to build better products. So that's our somewhat egoistic interest in the field. That being said, our companies, as I said, because they're slightly later stage, tend to focus on very specific real-life problems. And I can run you through a few of them if that is helpful just to give examples of the fields in which these make sense. In our portfolio, sure. that would be fintech, adtech, and I would say cybersecurity. Those are all fields where you have easily actionable levers to affect change. You have plenty of data to learn on. It has reasonably short feedback loops, right? You go, you try something, you see how it goes, and you can adjust accordingly to keep learning. So with that, let me do this in order. Probably the easiest one to understand for our listeners would be FinTech. You know, we all have bank accounts and credit cards and you know, mortgages and so on. One of our companies in this field is called Money Lion, and they're building the first comprehensive financial solution that is able to look across each of our spending, borrowing, and investment needs. So you know, as you have the individual accounts, they're able to see a horizontal view of all of them and optimize accordingly. And this is probably shocking to you as it was to me. Most Americans actually don't have $500 ready to meet a financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So for most of us, we actually live on the edge of financial stability. And what Money Lion does is they try to model and predict disparate and regular cash flows. So your grocery shopping, your salary deposit, checks being cashed, utility bills hitting the account, you name it. All of those very random things that happen on your, you can see on a, you know, on your bank statement. And through AI, machine learning, as they see the previous activity across all of your accounts, they can fairly accurately predict what's going to happen in the next couple of months. So is there an occasion where you have a confluence of things? Your salary is being deposited late because of a holiday, you know, a rent withdrawal hits early, and at the same time, you know, there's a big celebration that's happening. Between all those things, they can predict whether you're going to come close to or even cross some of the limits on your accounts, overdraw your debit card or overextend your credit card. And based on that, we can warn our members and tell them, listen, we might have to rebalance some of your accounts or you should rebalance some of your accounts to make sure you don't get hit with fees. And to those of us who have been hit with, you know, overdraft and bounce check and other fees, you know, they pile up very fast once you cross the threshold. So this is one very easy way to understand how we use machine learning in a way that no human being could have done before. It's very hard for us to sit down every single day and figure out what our cash flow projection looks for the next, let's say, two weeks. Ironically, Moneyline is also a very good example of how you can use 
similar machine learning in a somewhat more invisible fashion. So when one of our members calls their call center to request help on their account, for example, or some further advice, they have used machine learning to understand based on the time of day, the activity on those accounts, any previous interactions we have had with that member to figure out what their need might be. Are they calling to change a password? Are they calling to better understand the charge? Are they calling to change certain limits on their account? This way, we can predict what the pain point is, direct that call much faster, and make sure that people get to the information they need in the most seamless fashion. For most people, this seems like magic, right? But on the back end, there's actually a machine learning algorithm helping us do all of this. And before I move on from that, I have to mention, this is not just gimmicky. It has allowed us to actually significantly increase our customer satisfaction on the call center side. And when we look at the product, MoneyLion members have actually seen an increase of 60 to 70 credit points, so the credit score points, on their accounts by using the platform for about a year. So with that, we are actually training AI to develop a mechanism that yields a positive result whether it is better customer service or an increase in our financial stability. Okay, that's and great. You Thank want, you for that. I have that. a couple of more. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is perfect. I think this has been great insight. I think we really dove deep into one example, but I know there's many more. Kathleen? Yeah, so, you know, following up with that, I know that you were one of the panelists at our AI Investor Forum event in New York City in May, along with many other leading investors in AI and AI-focused startups as well. So can you share some of the insights from that event that you gleaned about the current climate for investing in AI-centric startups? Sure thing. It was actually a very fun panel, and thank you for having me on. I think we debate a number of very cool topics, including key areas of investment, the need for academic or practical experience on a founding team, the ebbs and flows in AI funding. We actually even heard a few good AI pitches. So it was a great day to spend with people involved in the industry. Overall, I would say the consensus was that it's a pretty good time for AI startups to get funded. The industry is getting mature. There is a broader understanding of what AI stands for and what it does and how it can be applied. And therefore, there's more dollars flowing into the ecosystem. I will caveat this, however. While this has been happening, AI together with, let's say, blockchain or augmented reality have become a little bit of fairy dust. So we see more and more startups come to us and just throw those words around in a way to prove that their idea is viable or worthy or cool or fundable. And that's just not how it works. So the feedback I think the panel gave the audience was when you go out and say, this is an AI company, you should be ready to defend why that is the case. As VCs, we're getting smarter about investing in AI companies. And you are likely to hear similar questions we ask everybody else, such as, what's the problem you're solving? Why is it worth solving? Why is AI the best likely solution? What AI architecture are you applying to the solution? Why do you choose that architecture? And I guess, why do you think it's better or faster or cheaper than other options to go the AI or machine learning route? It sounds like a really cool technology, but narrow AI is expensive. It's expensive in terms of computational resources, in terms of human resources to go and build the machine. It's expensive in terms of ongoing maintenance and making sure the system works as expected. So before you suggest this very large and heavy project to go and solve a problem, are we sure this is the best possible fit? And I think that discussion with the audience evolved well as people dove in a bit deeper into the specific solutions where AI may be the actual right choice. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, well, that's definitely the case. We're seeing a lot of companies who are sort of sprinkling some of that AI machine learning fairy dust on their yeah. clearly not intelligent <laughs> products and, you know, hoping for and a I know little that, bit of gold. Mm. Yeah, and Ron and I have talked about this before in previous podcasts that, you know, to get investment in AI startup right now isn't hard, but be careful about, you know, how your company is really using AI. Like you said, make sure that AI is the right path and also make sure that it really is AI and not some sprinkling of fairy dust on top because I think that people can see through that fairly quickly. Yeah. I'll be much more blunt about this. VCs, you know, we are really the smartest guys in the room. That almost never happens, and thank God. But what we're good at is we learn fairly fast. I think that's that's the core requirement of our position. And as such, over the past three years, we dove in and we read the textbooks and we figure out why and where this makes sense. So we will put most people through the paces today, much more than we did three, four years ago, where we were very much out of our out of our depth on AI. Uh-huh. Well, that's good. Well, obviously, you know, the markets are changing. You know, things are evolving. I mean, you know, we're seeing some companies actually shying away a little bit now from using the term AI, focusing more on machine learning or on specific applications. So we'll have to keep in mind about that. Yeah, you know, I think part of the other reason why I think we're seeing a little bit of a pullback from some companies on using AI as a term very aggressively is concerns in the industry, especially some concerns about how AI is going to be a job killer. I mean, we have definitely written about this subject at Cognolytica and on our AI Today podcast. We said that, well, AI is not really going to be a job killer in net, but it may kill categories of jobs or it may, you know, really definitely alter parts of the economy and the job ecosystem. So, you know, what are you seeing in the market? You know, can you talk to us about how have you seen AI and related technologies actually affecting the job market on the positive side, the negative side, would be good to get your insight. Happy to. And, you know, it may turn out the Luddites were right, you know, in the current economic environment. But a more, more, more serious note, I stand with you. As you have discussed in previous podcasts, it is quite likely that as with any other major technological change, AI will destroy some jobs. It will make them obsolete as it is better, faster, and cheaper than our current solution. And at the same time, it would enable new jobs, whether they are in the field of maintaining and building that AI, or they're in the field that in field they're enabled by that cheaper, faster, better solution that AI provides. So net-net, and if we look historically at this, we tend to turn out okay. We get better productivity. Some jobs get displaced. Others get created. Net-net, we probably have more jobs. And that doesn't mean that societally it's an easy transition. You know, we have pointed to the Industrial Revolution as a classical example of this, where, again, it was not easy on a number of people that were replaced by the oncoming industrial technology. This being said, I would argue it's more of an indictment on our politicians than on our technologists that we go through such a rough transition. At the end of the day, technology is not good or bad, it just exists. And we need to figure out how to deal with it, how to adapt it, how to implement in our daily lives. I don't have a strong argument why that is the case. It's more of a gut feeling. It's more of what I'm seeing in the market. Mm-hmm. But I you know, argue, probably for the benefit of, of, of our listeners, that it's actually very hard to displace jobs. And I know it might not feel that way, but on a global scale, if you think about it, for AI to displace an actual job, it has to be three things. It has to be better, faster, and cheaper than what we currently have. And for most of our applications, that is not yet the case. We have AI that is better and faster, but it's definitely not cheaper. We have AI that is better and cheaper, but it's not faster. And we have plenty of, you know, kind of hastily put together machine learning solutions that are faster and cheaper, but they're by no means better than a human being. So crossing that threshold is a very high bar. And I'll further add that for 
AI to replace an actual job, an existing job, it has to be better, faster, and cheaper by a fairly narrow margin. And if you indulge me in a bit of a contrived example, Alexa is not new. So the ability for me to wake up in the morning and say, Alexa, play classical music, that has actually existed for centuries. Now, back in the day, Louis XVI would wake up and say, I want to listen to classical music. And suddenly, a band of musicians will assemble in his chambers, and they'll start playing classical music, or I guess at the time, just music, right? But at the time, that was a remarkably expensive endeavor, only affordable to kings. And because of that, it was not widespread. And actually, it wasn't widespread for a very long time. You could, if you wanted to, wake up and pick up the phone and call somebody and play, play some music for me. People just didn't do that. So Alexa, in that specific example, while very convenient, did not replace any jobs. We did not have people who came every morning to give us the morning news. Again, this is a very contrived example, but all I'm saying is the number of jobs that are then likely created on top of our ability to learn the news in the morning, have voice interfaces, and do many things that were impossible a few years ago are likely to vastly outstrip the number of jobs today if they even exist. Yeah, thank you for that very insightful answer. And I like your example with the classical musician. (laughs) So... As a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to corporations and beyond? Oof, that's a tricky topic. So on one hand, I have disclosed that I am biased in my view in that I said we invest mostly in narrow AI technology. So from our perspective, recent advancement in AI like machine vision, image recognition, voice processing, anomaly detection, actually even more fundamental concepts like GANs, they will find their way into corporate value chains and enhance it along the way. Bear in mind that you know, a lot of that will come down to the efficiency of implementation. So it will drag along some other core infrastructure providers, you know, think data lakes. But overall, some people will do it very well, and they'll gain true competitive advantage as their products are better and smarter, or their costs are lower. And others will miscalculate the application or fail to implement and burn a lot of money along the way. In either case, for our corporate listeners, having some degree of machine learning or AI embedded in our product will become table stakes. And that's just not the product. It's our marketing departments and logistics operations and cybersecurity call centers, you name it. We will have to go and chase that down. It will just be standard within a few good years. You'll notice what I'm describing is effectively process optimization. So with the recent advance in AI, we have found a cool new tool in my perspective. And we're currently learning both how to apply it and improve it. It's been applied in everything I have said so far, but I'll go ahead and say it outright. I am not convinced that at this point, AI is an exponential technology, at least not more so than computers or the internet. I believe it enables us to do new things better, faster, cheaper, but the narrative of continuously improving algorithms that get smarter and smarter and eventually make us obsolete, that ignores a number of massive stumbling blocks along the way. So that would be my perspective in the near term. Now, if you don't mind, I will take away my venture capitalist hat and switch to a more general human interest hat. I've avoided general AI in this discussion because it's just not what we invest in. But I think we are far from a broad general AI implementation. That does not mean that the question that we ask around it is wrong. So you have discussed on your podcast whether you should be afraid of AI and what the implications are on society scale Uh and so on. What I'm going to go and say is likely too metaphysical for this conversation. But with AI, computer science as a field is finally running into one of the core ethical conundrums of other sciences. That is our ability to play God. 
By that I mean our ability to create or destroy life in a way in which was previously out of reach for human beings. So other fields, physics and chemistry, had for a number of, well, almost decades, right? We've seen it with explosives and uh, chemical weapons and nuclear weapons. So we have gone through that ethical discussion there. It's still ongoing. Similar with biology. You know, biology is catching up very fast over the past couple of decades with cloning and artificial gene synthesis and genetic manipulation, which is gaining traction. So computer science has been somewhat isolated from it as a more of a abstract dealing with machines field. But suddenly AI is forcing us to grapple with the same core moral and ethical question. When does AI stop being a tool and become something different? How do we deal with a machine that mimics us almost perfectly? How do we feel about creating a machine that is smarter than us? Is that machine sentient? What is sentience? What is our responsibility as people who bring something like this into the world? And again, you know, this is a new question to computer science, but not a new question overall. And I fundamentally believe that having those discussions in advance before we even get there is critical. Our capacity to create and destroy life is rapidly outpacing our moral capacity to yield such power. So having discussions such as the one we're having today and the one that you have been having on this podcast for a very long time is, I would argue, as valuable to the overall future as the creation of the technology itself. I've spoken too long. All of that went to say, I am very happy to be on the podcast and part of the discussion. Okay, great. Well, this has been extremely valuable. I mean, you know, especially you know, as a venture capitalist and somebody who someone would think would be coming at it from outside the industry. Actually, that's quite the opposite. You know, I don't think people realize how much inside the industry of venture capitalists and investors like you are and core participants in, in making this market happen. And I think when people have listened to us talk about the AI winters, we've had it, that was like one of our very first podcasts. We spent some time talking about the AI winters. A lot of the cause of the winters is, is the lack of funding the lack of continued support. I don't think people realize how core to the whole functioning of this market and ecosystem are various sources of funding, whether it's from venture capitalists and investors who are investing to build companies or from various different government sources or from you know research institutions and large companies. And I think people need to pay a lot of attention to it. So your feedback and your perspective is extremely valuable. You know, Thank you so much for joining us and participating on this podcast. We really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure to be on and I look forward to a long, fruitful, and winterless future for AI. That's too. So, Dova, thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, as always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Fiverr.com. Fiverr is a marketplace for creative and digital freelance services. And in fact, I use Fiverr for quite a lot of the things that we do here at Cognolytica and AI Today, including the editing of this podcast, the generation of transcripts, and more. I definitely encourage you to take a look at using Fiverr for your creative and digital needs today. And I have a special offer for you today. Use the promo code AI Today for 15% off your first purchase on Fiverr.com. Offer valid until December 31st, 2018. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolitica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, 
including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright 2018 by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.